Hello and welcome to Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee with me, Bex. And me, Eason. And welcome to part seven. There's a body, all right. Mm, there is a body, all right. <laughs> well, there's two of them. <laughs> the bodies are racking up, aren't they? They yeah. are. And, and some of them aren't even human. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting that no one's brought up the question of where Ruth's body is. Yeah, why is it only the head? Why is no one looking for the rest of her? Yeah, because they're interested in kind of investigating the uh, crime as related to Bill Hastings, because it's to do with Ruth and they were potentially having an affair, but no one's worried about that corpse. They're kind of worried about, uh, you know, the body, but maybe it's because they haven't identified it yet. They want to figure that out. Yeah. But no one's thinking, oh, what happened to Ruth's body? And that's that's another one of the many things in Hank's sack. He's <laughs> <laughs> carrying a lot around. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Welcome to our episode. Thank you again for tuning in. Thank you for all the very generous comments you have sent our way on Twitter, etc. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Yeah, and if you've got like five minutes to spare, um, wherever you get your podcasts, like Stitcher or iTunes, um, please do uh, leave us a review and rate us as well. It kind of helps to get our podcast out there. And it's really great to... Uh, sort of interact with everyone in the uh, Twin Peaks fan community as well. Hmm. So a funny thing happened on the way to part seven. We accidentally watched parts one to six in a row <laughs> in the six hours leading up to part seven. Yes, we haven't done that yet. I mean, we've watched all the episodes again and again and again, sort of during the week. But we sat down at like 8pm in the evening. So it airs at 2am here. And uh, we thought, let's just watch an episode of Twin Peaks. And uh, before we knew it, we were... Uh, six hours into it and wide awake ready for the new episode <laughs> but it's a very interesting way to watch if you if you see it all in one chunk because it really does flow quite well but interestingly I think these six were a good block to watch together because I think that what happens in part seven is there's a very real change in uh, tone and pace as well mm. um, so it was nice to watch that that first bit together and kind of refresh ourselves on what's going on and it was interesting because every time we watched it, there was new stuff there. Yeah. So things that we hadn't noticed in the background, things people were doing that in retrospect, we watched it again. And we think we saw Lucy playing uh, patience, with the cards on the table, um, all, all these little things that appear really early on that we kind of started picking up on some of the motifs as it went along. And you realise they were there from the very beginning before we even really started noticing them. Yeah. Lynch and Frost. They're not stupid. No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> So, should we crack on with part seven? Let's do that. Right, so we begin with a lonely and confused Jerry Horn <laughs> uh, standing in the woods, very confused, and he makes a call to Ben on his mobile phone. Yeah, it's, it's Dude, Where's My Car? Twin Peaks edition. <laughs> <laughs> Why would his car even be in the woods? It didn't look like he'd even drive it up there. Well, I think the explanation comes down to the fact that he's high as a kite. Yeah. <laughs> as he shouts down the phone, I think I'm high. I don't know where I am. <laughs> it's weird. It's a kind of an aside. And it's funny, again, to watch him interacting with Ben. But there is something odd about that scene. I think it's one of those ones which is meant to be a bit of a throwaway, just showing you like the bit where uh, Jerry is watching the Dr. Amp thing on his on his iPad. Hmm. There is something about the way he's looking through the trees in the woods. Yeah, I'm I'm not convinced that it's entirely him being completely high. I do wonder if he's seen something out there 
I mean, there is weird shit out there. Yeah, certainly in the secret history, everyone's having these funny events in the woods. We've seen it in the original Twin Peaks, uh, most notably, I think, when uh, Cooper and Briggs have that interaction in the woods where uh, Briggs is taken away and maybe taken to the White Lodge as well. Hmm. Yeah, and I'm wondering if he's seen the entrance to, I don't know, maybe even the White Lodge, if that's out there as well, or has he seen some denizen of the lodges in the woods or has he just seen some crazy supernatural thing has he seen that burned dude walking around for all we know that certainly <laughs> freaked me out if I saw that in the woods yeah he does attribute everything he sees to being high which would kind of be confusing because maybe he is seeing things that aren't real but certainly there are moments when people see giants in the secret history so you don't know what he's seen I wonder if he'll come back to those motifs um, where maybe he will Maybe they'll actually show an interaction of him with something weird where he realises that uh, maybe he's not as high as he thinks. No. I, I mean, let's face it, if you're walking through the woods and you saw the evolution of the arm in front of you, you'd probably think either I'm very high or I'm having some kind of breakdown <laughs> because what the hell is that? The other thing I thought, though, was about the fact that he says he can't find his car. Hmm. Now, that was weird because at first, I know it doesn't really play out with the rest of the episode, but do you think that relates given that he's a horn do you think that relates to the fact that uh richard may have taken his truck yeah because i'm not sure that we know who that other kind of anonymous guy is yeah later in the episode talks to. Yeah. um it is his truck but yeah. you do wonder how it all works because it is strange that the one time that richard horn is taken a car away or it's a truck i suppose maybe there is just the car truck difference the one time that's gone missing is the time when uh, jerry can't find what he's looking for but like you say he is in the woods yeah and he can't blame the log lady for this one <laughs> there's no rainbow trout in the bed and then we get a scene between hawk and sheriff truman which i think is a, a huge payoff that has been a long time coming people have spent so many years theorizing about did Laura write Annie's message in the diary? What does it mean if she did? Did it change the course of events? Is it, would it have some massive influence? And it's quite remarkable after all this time and all these theories to actually have an answer and see the page of the diary where she wrote down exactly what she dreamt about with Annie. Yeah, so the consensus after part six was that the pages that Hawk finds in the bathroom stall door are pages from the diary it turns out that's true and all of a sudden we're left with uh three pages laid out in little sort of cellophane baggies as as new pieces of evidence which have just been found and it suddenly changes the way that you actually think about the world of twin peaks you realize there's an even bigger narrative forming here that ties together so many different aspects of uh, the twin peaks mythology and one interesting thing is that Frank doesn't seem particularly phased by all this stuff that he's hearing. He certainly doesn't seem phased when Hawk talks about the lodges and the fact that someone other than the good Cooper might have come out of the lodge. Um, I guess if he grew up in Twin Peaks and was a bookhouse boy, he would have known that of you know the evil in the woods and stuff like that, and would wouldn't be entirely shocked by being confronted with the prospect of something that appears supernatural certainly when you compare that to the way that 
the younger members of the chef's department were rather incredulous when they were talking about the log lady. And, Chad. Yeah, yeah, looking at you, Chad. <laughs> it's, it seems like the older generation, even if they weren't necessarily involved in the events that happened, they do have an awareness that there is something not entirely right about the woods around the town. So it also works as a quite a, a useful piece of exposition, I suppose, for people who just haven't watched the original series or haven't watched Fire Walk With Me, haven't watched The Missing Pieces. Or just haven't remembered all the details. Yeah, to actually have a couple of characters. And Frank acts as a very useful sounding board to be... It's a bit of a, as you know, Bob, um, which is an unfortunate name for that phrase, <laughs> but that's what it is. It's a bit of an as you know, Bob, to uh, explain this stuff partly for the sake of the audience as well, I think. But it does work because Frank wouldn't know everything. Presumably he knew some stuff from Harry, but he certainly wouldn't have known all the details. Yeah, so Hawk believes, and I think we're led to believe as well, that this is the message from the log coming through. So I think that it'd be strange if this wasn't the correct interpretation, there was something else. I think this is going to be that sealed off now. They found the pages. I mean, certainly... It also brings to the fore the fact that in this new series, Laura is going to be a very prominent theme in this uh, new version of Twin Peaks. The most notable thing as well is, you know, beyond reading this message, you know, the good Dale is in the lodge and he cannot leave. Um, it also highlights the fact that Annie is clearly a real character. She mm. did exist and she was in the town of Twin Peaks and she was in the town at the same time as Dale because they directly reference the fact that both Annie and Dale went into the Black Lodge, as occurred in the season two finale. What is a bit weird is uh, Hawk just refers to her as a girl called Annie Blackburn. There's no mention of Norma or indication that she's related to anyone, but I suppose if Frank is new in town, maybe he doesn't know all the family relationships. Yeah. And it does then pose the interesting question of why Annie is not in the secret history of Twin Peaks. Yeah. And now I suppose her omission in one respect, could be explained by the fact that there's the query over whether in this iteration she is Norma's sister, mm. if that makes sense. So maybe she's not in... Maybe something strange has happened and she's been erased from history in some respect so that she's not Norma's sister, which is why she wouldn't be mentioned in the secret history. But something is not right about this. And I think the fact that they've mentioned her implies that they are going to explain exactly what might be going on. It kind of goes to the idea that we discussed a couple of episodes back where the secret history might itself be a version of the history of the local region, which essentially uh, reveals how things would be if the influences of the lodgers hadn't really manifested. So it's kind of a bit unclear, but there's something funny about the fact that although Annie is real, she doesn't seem to fit into the world of Twin Peaks. Which kind of fits with what Norma actually said when she first introduced her. She's from another time and place or something. Yeah. But Hawk makes no mention to what happened to her, other than that she came out of the lodge at the same time as Cooper. Doesn't say whether she was alright, did she move away, did she die? It's just not referred to at all. Yeah, I think all we have is probably what happens in The Missing Pieces. So we have the scene of Annie in the hospital when the nurse comes over and sort of steals the ring, etc. And I suppose even then, that's when the message is being sent to Laura as well, which tells you that time is being played around with a lot when it involves communication involving the lodgers in some way. 
But in terms of these pages, it is kind of odd. So they specifically say that these are three of the four missing pages from the diary, and it's specifically the one that was given to Harold. I suppose there is a bit of a question over what's happened to the fourth page. Yeah, because well, didn't Harold tear up one some of the diary that he had? Yeah. But that was all the stuff that was pieced together, wasn't it? You know, there's yeah. a scene where they have lots of it, and the one missing page that has, I think, been accounted for is the one that... Donna has that she shows to Cooper yeah, and it's the one where Laura relates the dream which she shared with Cooper so that could be the missing fourth page Did that never wind up in in the in evidence? Yeah it, prob- it probably would have done I suppose I mean there could be another page that's missing and that could be a really big mystery you know it could even be linked to the actual mystery that Laura whispers in Cooper's ear you know yeah. the, at the beginning of part one I mean maybe there is some bigger mystery that involves what's written on that fourth page that we never knew about certainly something that would have been intended to be kept away from prying eyes by bob or whoever he was inhabiting at the time and they do try and explain how the pages ended up in the door of the bathroom stall but their theory is that it was leland who put them there which i I couldn't help but think, why would he keep them on him for so long? I mean, admittedly, who knows why Bob would do anything that he did. But why would he not try and destroy them if they were incriminating? Mm. And in particular, why would he have still had them on him when they arrest him for Jacques Renault's murder? Yeah. Because that was several days later. So for them to still be on his person, why would he have not got rid of them? And why would Leland non-Bob Leland not have found them. I still wonder if it was Mike. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because maybe they've introduced this as a means to keep the surprise that it was Mike, you know, a bit, you know, a bit of a a reveal for later on. Yeah. Um, But maybe everyone's already guessed it, so it won't be as surprising (laughs) as it actually is. I know there were times when Leland was hanging around the sheriff's station, but there was very specifically a scene where... Philip Gerard goes into one of the bathroom stalls, and I think it's odd that they are not utilising that again. Yeah. But I like the fact that Hawk is now becoming aware that there is a good and a bad Cooper. Um, although his his description of uh, the one that came out as not the good Cooper is a, a bit of an understatement. <laughs> yeah. So then Frank calls Harry because he wants to speak to someone who was there with Cooper in the Great Northern when he woke up having come out of the lodge. Uh, But his plan to actually discuss it with Harry gets cut short when Harry presumably reveals on the other end that that his illness is worse than he thought or that he needs more treatment or or there's, there's some kind of bad news on the other end that means he just doesn't want to bring it up at that point. And it's notable that we don't hear Harry on the other end of the line but later on when Frank is talking to Doc Hayward on the phone, you do hear him speaking on the phone even before the Skype call but you don't hear Harry in this it's just a completely one way conversation That is very odd, I mean I think it still strikes me as strange that Harry Truman is potentially not going to appear at all in light of this you do wonder why they didn't just have him on the other end of the phone Mm. It just seems a bit odd at the moment. 
But I do wonder what you're saying is actually a really good observation. I mean, the fact that you can hear uh, Doc Hayward, but you can't hear Harry. There's something funny going on there as well. But what it means, we do not know. So then we follow uh, Andy Brennan on his investigations into the hit and run accident, presumably. And he's identified the truck which Richard Horn was driving. He doesn't know Richard Horn was probably behind the wheel. Um, and he goes to some place somewhere in a very rural part of Twin Peaks, in the woods, sort of in a little clearing somewhere. There's like a weird cabin or shack. And there's a guy who he's talking to who appears to be the owner. Now, we don't get his name, and it might be in the credits, but I didn't catch it. And he seems really cagey and really scared about talking to Andy about what's going on. I think he admits that the truck is his, but he won't say any more about who was driving it. He's genuinely afraid. Mm. So you do wonder if maybe Richard has these people under his thumb. But again, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. Could this be a relation of Jerry or something? And mm. this is how it all links with the missing car or something like that. Could this be where Jerry's, you know, or one of Jerry's families is living in the middle of Twin Peaks somewhere? <laughs> yeah. The thing I found that was odd, though, is that Richard is clearly some kind of psychopath, but he's very much, um, a, at the same time, a bit of a kind of pathetic figure, whereas Red is genuinely terrifying. And so it makes me wonder if he's afraid of Richard, or if he's afraid of the people that Richard is involved with. Because the fear that he had, I don't know, it se- to me it seemed to go beyond just this this one psychopathic little weasel who presumably could be taken out if they needed to. Yeah, certainly if uh, they're involved in running the local drug running operation, which is being overseen by Red, and they know what Red's capable of, that's probably what's making them scared. Yeah, it, it felt like there was, there was some... There was something almost kind of demonic about the fear that he had which seemed to me to go beyond fear of Richard and towards fear of something much worse which is someone like Red standing behind him and controlling the whole situation I don't know because I I still don't buy Richard as a, a kind of Black Lodge denizen or, or anything like that I, I think he's just a I, th- I think he's just a horrible person. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's anything more supernatural than that. Yeah. And and I think you see that in the, in the scene that he has with Red and the way that he feels completely intimidated by him. You know, I, I, I can't buy a, a Black Lodge inhabitant feeling that way in, in that situation. So I don't know, maybe he's just afraid of Richard. Maybe he knows that Richard is a psycho and will kill him. But it felt like there was something worse going on there. It was odd also, because if he knows what's going on, they would have made more of an effort to hide the truck. Yeah. You wouldn't have it in plain sight, because he can see it, can't he? And he says, is that your truck? So that's a bit odd. And also, why doesn't Andy just go and investigate himself? Yeah, why have they not impounded the truck if they know that that was the truck that was used? That could just be be Andy. (laughs) (laughs) Before you leave and go, dope. But the one thing is, they, you know, Andy does agree to arrange a meeting up on the logging road Mm. and potentially crucially (laughs) we don't know uh, the time that they're planning to meet is 4 30 now this could relate to the giant's first clue the remember 430 so he knew that 
253, as revealed by the evolution of the arm, was a time. Hmm. So it's not unreasonable to think that 430 is also a time. Certainly it's unclear what the significance of that time is in this context, because as the meeting is shown later on, nothing actually happens, no one turns up. But it could just mean that at that time, something happened. And when the guy doesn't show up later, we do wonder whether he's still alive at that point. Hmm. So then we see Frank turning to the other person who was there when Coop came out of the Black Lodge and examined him, which is Doc Hayward, and he calls him up. And we we get to see a lot more technology in this episode than we have previously. We've already had people on mobile phones, and now we get this um, super cool screen rising up out of the desk in order to Skype someone. I don't, how, how do you even buy something like that? <laughs> Does he like make it himself? It's, it's so cool. I want one of those for my desk at work. That'd be awesome. It's interesting though because it almost seems to allow you to have modern technology in the sheriff station but without it compromising the aesthetic. Mm. So it's very easy to say oh it looks like it hasn't changed etc. But clearly they've replaced the desks and desks have some computers in them. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you compare that to the Buckhorn Police Department, where you very clearly see screens everywhere, and they've even got a, a Buckhorn Police screensaver mm. or, or a backdrop on some of the screens. Whereas you're right, in, in Twin Peaks, it seems very much like they've tried to keep technology beneath the veneer of of the, the place, to the point where they've even got that dispatch room tucked away at the back in a room away from everything. Mm. Um, and, and a completely different phone line coming into Lucy at reception so that she doesn't freak out and fall off her chair again. So he calls Doc Hayward in order to ask him about Coop. And this is kind of interesting because Frank has never met Coop and has presumably only ever heard stories of him from Hawk, from Harry. And yet he's now on the trail of, of finding out what's actually happened and what happened to him when he came back out. I find it interesting that it's now pulled in someone who has no personal connection to Coop whatsoever. He calls up Doc Hayward and they, they Skype each other. And it's quite, a, it's quite a neat way of bringing Doc Hayward into it as well. Because yeah. he's clearly off fishing somewhere. Um, everyone seems to be, to be going off fishing all the time. And he makes a joke about finding um, fish in his pyjamas. And we get some crucial pieces of information from Doc Hayward... So, first of all, we find out that Bad Coop was taken to the hospital and that he disappeared from the hospital and wasn't seen again, but that he was seen hanging around the ICU. And Doc Hayward proposes the the possible explanation that he was there to visit Audrey because Audrey was in a coma, having just about survived the explosion at the bank at Twin Peaks Savings and Loan. Which again lines up with something that happened in the secret history. They do say that she survived and she was in a coma. Yeah. So we know that's another piece of evidence from that dossier, which is true. Like Very little has actually been uh, contradicted so far. So again, it makes things like the omission of Annie quite telling. Yeah. Because presumably the other person who would have been in the same hospital was Annie. And in fact, the scene where you see the nurse take the ring off her implies that that Annie was in the hospital and that the ring was there too. So maybe that was the real reason why Cooper went there, or bad Cooper went there, was because he was looking for the ring, but then didn't find it. Which might also explain why in sort of the more current timeline, uh, just before he kills Daria, the card that he has, that might actually have what looks like 
you know, the symbol from our cave on it. And so you wonder if actually his, you know, I'm looking for this, you know, is actually related to the ring. So maybe he's been looking for the ring for 25 years. Mm. Um, but that still doesn't make too much sense, maybe because surely he would have been able to find it in 25 years. <laughs> yeah, and then it, it puts forward the question of who manufactured Dougie and how did he end up with the ring, the original yeah. Dougie? Because he had it and now Mike's got it in the Black Lodge. So presumably if there is only one ring, it's now out of action and tucked away in the Black Lodge. But you're right, if there are multiple rings, then God help us all. <laughs> yeah, and two very minor points about that scene. One is that uh, just behind uh, Frank, you can see a little owl on the shelf. Mm. It's weird, it's one of those shows where now we're freeze-framing loads of bits of it and we're just seeing owls in the background all the time. The other thing is, and I'm sure this is not relevant at all, but the patient who Doc Hayward says he diagnosed by Skype was a Mrs. Bueller. Which is funny because Beulah was the name of the uh, woman who Evil Coop goes to see at the very beginning, sharing the house with Otis and Ray and Daria. I'm sure it's not the same person, but it's interesting that that name has come up again. And we'll probably come back to the issue of what may or may not have gone on in the ICU a bit later on, sort of in the speculation section at the end. One thing relates to the Annie situation. So we've discussed the fact that Evil Coop may have been there to get the owl cave ring from Annie which he presumably doesn't get because the nurse takes it the other thing that could have happened is that's the site where Annie projects her message to Laura's dream from Mm -hmm. so the other thing is maybe he was trying to prevent that message being sent so maybe he knew that Annie having been in the lodge or maybe generally has some kind of special powers and maybe he knew that she was trying to send a message or might send a message to somebody to say that the Goodale is in the lodge, and maybe he was trying to intercept that or stop that from happening, um, which obviously now we know was not successful. Um, the other thing is, though, you know, this issue of Audrey Horn being in the ICU at the time. Now, lots of people have been speculating on this, certainly with regard to trying to work out the parentage of Richard Horn. And there is some indication, certainly from his opening scene in the Roadhouse, that there is something potentially lodgy about his behavior but again like we've discussed i mean he he is just a psychopath and in his behavior with red he wasn't the all-powerful lodge-like spirit we might uh, predict he's just a despicable human being now there is this question which is starting to arise about whether there is a possibility that coop may have actually assaulted audrey when she was in the icu and that could have resulted in richard horn We don't know if that's true. And I think that, to be honest, it's an interesting speculation. And I think it would be a very controversial one to deal with as well, given how they handled the Audrey-Coop relationship originally. Mm. Um, On one hand, I think they wouldn't be afraid to go there because this is a show which has dealt with some very dark themes that sometimes people forget about. But also, it might almost be one of those things that we're meant to believe. Yeah. And they're going to completely subvert that. I still think there's a possibility that... Uh, Richard Horn is related to one of the other horns. I just don't know, but we'll come back to that a little bit at the end about how that all might work. Because certainly our view is enhanced a little bit by the interrelationship that we investigate between Diane and Cooper later on. Yeah. Do you think people are trying to ascribe lodginess with Richard's behaviour in order to explain it rather than just some people are like that? Yeah, I think there is an element of that because... 
in the world of Twin Peaks as well, they were very careful to show evil everywhere. But there was evil that was not rooted in the Black Lodges mm. and in the supernatural. It was potentially, you know, it was the evil that... I can't remember who, who it was who said it. It was Albert who refers to Bob as being a realisation of the evil that men do or mm. something. I think there's a potential view which is that there is evil in the world which is completely human in its source. We had Leo Johnson, we had Jacques Renault. Yeah. Windermel. Uh, Windermel. These were humans. You know, they weren't in any way related to the lodge, except in the case of Wyndham later yeah. on. But he but, wasn't possessed by a spirit, he was just trying to to access his power. Yeah, there's a darkness and there's an evil in the world, and I think that could be more rooted in what's going on with Richard. But yeah, we have to wait and see. Certainly I think you're right, there's no immediate reason why we should think that Richard is 100% the child of Audrey and Evil Coop. It's possible, but I still think we haven't seen the definitive evidence on that yet. So then at long last, we return to Buckhorn to investigate what's happened with the body that we're now getting more and more certain belongs to Major Briggs. And we have Lieutenant Knox, who's meeting with Detective Mackley, who delivers the line which gives the episode its namesake. There's a body all right. Delivered by JJ from JJ's Diner. (laughs) And they go to the coroner's office and it's clear that there's some concern over the fact that so far the prints which were alluded to as having appeared in the past, which have been investigated by the military, they seem to have been involved at crime scenes maybe or at different sites they've never actually been involved with the corpse so what they have now is a body which has the prints of major briggs on somebody who they've been looking for for 25 years and my impression is that they believe that he was alive still yeah and it's odd because although they are shocked that there's a body and obviously she's shocked to find that he's apparently in his late 40s but only died very recently it doesn't make her completely disbelieve that this could be Briggs. If she was completely unaware of any kind of weirdness happening, you would simply think, oh, well, the coroner's made a mistake, they've mixed up the fingerprints, something has happened, because that can't possibly be Briggs. Which also suggests that maybe Lieutenant Knox and Colonel Davis are actually part of the same Project Blue Book that Mm. uh, Briggs was involved in, so they know exactly what they're looking for. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think about the fact that the body appears to have the age of Briggs as he was 25 years ago? I think I think there are a number of explanations. I think, okay, he could have been killed 25 years ago and then stored somehow, but I don't know how you would physically do that and for it not to be obvious. Um, I don't know why you would do that. I think um, he could have been in some other plane of existence could he have been in one of the lodges we, we kind of get the feeling in, in the previous series that he has been to the White Lodge you get that bit where he's abducted and he describes seeing the kind of very verdant place and you also get this, that wonderful speech he gives to Bobby in, in the Double Diner about the vision that he has for his future there's some kind of connection between Briggs and the White Lodge so could he have been there could he have time jumped I mean we saw him appear previously when he reappeared having been abducted in 
very distinctively old kind of flying gear. So has he got the ability to move around in time or has he been shifted in time by some other power, by some lodge power? Has he been popping around here, there and everywhere putting this dossier together? It's interesting that the dossier still hasn't been found, but I get a feeling that that's going to be coming quite soon. Um, and it's got to have something to do with with the Buckhorn crime scene. But I, I think we probably will get some kind of answers at some point to what Briggs has been doing and how he could be there. But I find it interesting that the military don't disbelieve that it's him. So they clearly know that there's something highly unusual. I think you're right, maybe they are also members of Project Blue Book. And it's interesting that we don't see who the colonel calls yeah. afterwards. So there was an indication in the previous part, or even the one before, where he says that he's going to have to make the call to the FBI. Mm. Now, initially, we presumed it meant, I suppose, just because they're the characters you know, or that must be to Cole. Yeah. But it could be somebody else in the FBI. Yeah, because there's no indication that Cole had received a call about any of this. Because we we see him, you know, off on his own adventure with Albert and Tammy and Diane, and there's no indication that they've had any new information from somewhere. My prediction is that he's called Denise Bryson. I mean, she's the most senior person at the FBI that we know. I think she knows more than she's letting on. Sure. That, that scene where she talks to Gordon before... There was something slightly cryptic in the way that they were speaking to each other. I think those roses on the chair mean something. When we watched it again, we noticed it's a mixture of red roses and there's a couple of lilies in there as well. And you see the lilies as well in Mr Todd's office. Yeah, there's a couple of places we've been seeing lilies. So there's kind of interesting potential flower symbolism going on. I do wonder if it was for Denise to listen that they got Tammy to wear a wire the first time they went to see Bad Coop. The way Denise says to Gordon, I think you're on to something big. It seemed like she was hinting at something to him without saying it out loud. Like 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 the giant question mark, question mark said, it cannot all be said aloud mm. right now. I think that she knows something and I suspect that means she'll be back as well. Yeah. In, so, in some capacity. And one other thing to add is that it also says that given that they thought that Briggs should be in his 70s now or whatever, that also means that they know that he didn't die in the fire that Bobby thinks he died in. So yeah. that must have been a complete smokescreen. But I remember that Betty Briggs had some idea of what Garland was up to. Yeah. So although she may have told Bobby this has happened, it might be the case that she actually knows a little bit more about what's going on. Uh, so, she, you know, this might have been the cover story that she was told to spread, that he died in the fire. But she might know that he did disappear on some other mission that was potentially for the greater good. Um, Bill Hastings' secretary's name is Betty. Yeah. That's true, actually. I didn't think of that. I mean, we just assumed that she would be retired, but we haven't seen her in Twin Peaks. We know that Bobby is in Twin Peaks. That's a very good point. And also you've got the fact that this issue of coordinates might be some information that Betty knows because Garland was in the military and they know about this kind of stuff. We've been racking our brains trying to figure out what the connection was between Briggs and Ruth Davenport and why on earth 
they would have ended up together. We we kind of theorised earlier in, in an earlier episode that maybe because she was a librarian, he was after, you know, some doc documentation or information that she had somewhere or was able to get. But now I'm wondering if, if it's just a... I mean, it, it does happen in Twin Peaks that people have the same name. It's a coincidence. But what's also interesting is that the last person to see Briggs was Evil Cooper. Mm. And Betty was there. She she wasn't in the room, I don't think, but it's referenced that Betty opens the door and lets him in in the secret history. It's something like that. She's around at least. So maybe she does know something, which is why he's going to find her again. Oh man. Is that what it is she that is that is that why we've had all this stuff about mysterious secretary and and the car and and yet we've we've never seen her, the police haven't interviewed her, but bad coop once for some reason there's some connection it could just be one of those duplicated names that they like to use in Twin Peaks that you know Mike and Bobby were not Mike and Bob things like that but now my head is just going at 100 miles an hour about whether that is her it could be so when Lieutenant Knox has seen the body and she goes out into the corridor to call Colonel Davies to tell him she's on the phone and it's, it's, it's one of those incredibly creepy things where you start to see something in the distance and it looks just perfectly normal and far away and then as it gets closer and closer you realise that there's something completely messed up I've, I've seen it done really well only a couple of times because normally it's too obvious but because it was also the same figure that kind of shadowy burnt guy that was in what I still think is probably the single freakiest moment of the series so far. Yeah. That you saw in the jail cell, just a few cells away from Bill Hastings before. And he's just walking down the corridor. And as he gets closer, and you realise that it's not a dark figure because it's far away, it is actually that guy. Yeah, it remains a shadow even as it's moving close up. It has no real features until it's there. And you can almost see the hint of the face and the body but it just looks very unreal yeah and that weird kind of crackling electricity noise there's a lot of humming again. and electricity in this episode yeah but then she she turns around as if she's thought that there's something there but there's no indication that she sees him because frankly if she had uh she would have been running in the opposite direction <laughs> as far as she probably could or at least said something about uh can we see that guy over there well she would have done she would have done something but I wonder if she heard something but can't see him. Yeah. So I don't know who can see him. And then she goes back into the morgue and says to them, oh, you didn't hear it from me, but this isn't going to be your case for much longer. And you see the burnt figure just walking past the door as if he's just wandering aimlessly around. So who do you think that is? I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know if he's supposed to look burned or if it's something else. He looks kind of sooty not like sooty which is a children's tv show involving a little <laughs> puppet bear um, so he's covered in soot it's very odd i mean he he just looks burned you know he looks just like covered in dirt and things i mean obviously he does look a bit like the monster behind winkies in, in mulholland drive mm. there's something about the fact that i remember that uh you know philip jeffries i think we mentioned this before when he zaps back to Buenos Aires he leaves a big singe mark and I wonder this guy has been travelling so much that he's just burnt himself completely to a crisp in some kind of way 
Um, there was an element of Philip Gerard wandering around her, a morgue, a bit crazy. But again, going back to Jeffries, it did remind me a lot of that bit where Cooper is watching himself on the monitor, mm. and you see completely po-faced, you know, eyes forward. You see Philip Jeffries just walk past him. Mm. Um, it's just very odd because obviously, even in that shot, Cooper didn't notice that he was walking past, did he? Until yeah. he sees it on the camera. So it's a similar kind of thing. I don't think it is Philip Jeffries. That'd be a bit weird. But there's something going on that's not uh, right. And again, he does look a bit like, well, in the scene above the convenience store, there is the woodsman who may or may not be the log lady's husband. It looks similar to that. But then he could have just got Jurgen Prochnow back again to do that. I don't know really what's going on there. There's something about it. I don't know what it is. At the moment, I'm kind of too scared of it to work out what it is. <laughs> I just remember sit, sitting there on the sofa and once I realised what it was coming towards the screen, I had exactly the same very sweary reaction to the one <laughs> that I had in that original original episode where you see it. I was just like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I think we will eventually find out what it is because that guy is not in the credits yet. And I know, I think there's some Italian fan site that tracked down the actor who played him and they were asking him questions and they said like, uh, oh, how was the makeup look achieved? And he said, oh, I don't feel comfortable talking about that until the series is aired. And I said, you know, oh, you're not on IMDb. And he said, well, no, because it would give away who I am or something like that, or it would, it would say too much about my character. So presumably he will eventually get credited for his role. But at the moment, they're obviously keeping it a complete secret. They're not even having him with question mark, question mark next to it. Yeah, so it must it's be just, serious. Yeah, it's just not even referenced. So eventually we will find out who he is. Uh, but for the moment, it's just bloody terrifying. Yeah, so after that mini teaser of Diane, a couple of weeks back now? Yeah. We then see the follow-up. And it's actually quite interesting that there's a scene set in Cole's office. He's whistling to himself. You see an interesting picture of corn on the wall. And I thought that maybe do with the creamed corn Garmin Bosier thing. But I don't know. There's something about that that seemed a bit odd. But it's also just as quirky as the big explosion he has on his wall as well. Yeah, or Kafka. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's interesting because you kind of wonder what happened in that scene after mm. we left it. And it turns out, as Albert relates to Cole, that nothing really happened. <laughs> it was what you saw. And then... I think he was told to leave in a slightly less polite form. <laughs> but they know it's really important that she has a look at Cooper in the prison. So what's interesting is there's that bit where Cole says, you know, that, that he'll go, but he wants Albert to come along. Mm. Then Albert says, say please. And then you get this kind of, oh, what? From Cole? And then Albert just says it again, so you know what I said. And it's just funny to think of Cole just pretending he can't hear sometimes when he mm. doesn't want to hear certain things. <laughs> there's a nice relationship they both have, actually. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of sad. I mean, going back to what happened earlier as well, I think it's it is very sad to watch these you know last performances of Warren Frost as Doc Hayward and uh, Miguel Ferrer here as well uh, as Albert. I mean, they really work in this Twin Peaks world actually. But I think this is a very fitting uh, final showpiece for all of them as well. So Albert does agree to go with Gordon to see Diane, and they go to her house. And um, I don't know if that guy is her friend, housemate, husband, no indication of who he might be. Probably doesn't even matter, really. The dude who is there lets them in. 
um, because presumably they are, but not let them in. <laughs> but it's too late now, they're in. And they have this wonderful conversation. I love the bit where they, where they ask, have you got any coffee? And she says, no, I don't have any cigarettes either. <laughs> when she's handing them a cup of coffee and a cigarette. <laughs> and it's interesting that Gordon says that he's quit smoking because there was also something in the previous episode, the guy in the car who gets in the van to go into town with um, Carl. Oh, yeah, uh, Mickey. Yeah. So, yeah, the person related to Linda in some way. Yeah. yeah. And he says that he quit. And Carl says, I know I'm still smoking. Yeah. It's just a kind of weird recurring recurring thing. But it's interesting when... It's very notable now when you do see people smoking on TV because it hardly ever happens. Because you know, it's difficult to actually be allowed to do it. Maybe they're allowed to do it if they have other characters saying, oh, yeah, I quit. so they basically pleaded with her to come with them to talk to Coop in prison they tell her that he's in federal prison and she says good which is the first sign that something has gone horribly wrong in her relationship with Coop at some point yeah he seems very happy that he's now behind bars or in a bad situation yeah and she really doesn't seem willing to help in any way no, I mean, that's not the reaction of someone whose boss just disappeared off the face of the earth 25 years earlier. But they do eventually convince her to go with them to talk to him by, by basically saying, look, you're the only person who can really help. Just, and there's a weird thing that Gordon says, is it's something that you know about, and that's enough said about that. Yeah, It's almost as if it's, again, like he's speaking half in code, that there's someone listening i don't know what it is i mean admittedly from the tapes that she received she would have known maybe quite a lot about what was going on in the twin peaks case anyway the other side of it is you know does she know about blue rose cases is she also one of the inner circle she wasn't mentioned in the secret history as any one of the key players certainly she wasn't mentioned at all i think um but she was never mentioned in that circle of like the you know, the, uh, the people who knew what was going on with the Blue Rose cases. So one wonders what that means, but it could have been something which was divulged more recently to her or that she knew about from Cooper. Yeah, because if, if she transcribed all those tapes that he sent back from Twin Peaks talking about Bob and, and things like that, she must know, if not know something, but at least know what Cooper believed was going on yeah. um, to some extent. So... Uh, and this is quite an interesting um, series of events because previously we've had a lot of chopping and changing between seeing what's going on with people. But here you get a distinct series of events, even though there were jumps in time. So first they're at Diane's house, then they're on the plane going to South Dakota, then they're in the prison in South Dakota with no jumps to what's going on with anyone else at any given time. It just sticks with them throughout the whole experience. And there's an interesting bit on the plane where Gordon is explaining to Tammy about the backward words. So Tammy shows him the fingerprints where there's something wrong with um, Bad Coop's left hand ring finger where it, it looks like it's been reversed. And she shows it to them and Albert notices it as well that um, they think that someone at the prison has flipped it in order to make it look like it lines up. But actually it would have been the other way around um, and then Gordon explains the backwards very word by saying right well he said 10 words in that sentence there are 10 fingers and 
if you count them on your fingers, then the second word is the reversed finger that he said backwards, which was all very bizarre. And Diane is listening to all of this going on. So she's clearly aware that there's something definitely not quite right about who this person is that she's going to meet. Yeah, it's very strange because there's a look on her face which is almost a sense of dread, which is trying to be kept concealed under this air of sort of overconfidence and brashness. You know, she's, she's so sweary and dismissive of everyone around her and trying to cut everyone off. But you realise that there's that look in her eyes when she's listening to what they're saying about Cooper, where she knows that she's almost about to face some terrible demon from her past. Mm. And I think she's just drinking on the plane, isn't she? She's just trying to calm her nerves. And it's interesting that she tries to put out this air of being tremendously in, in control. But it's becoming very clear at this point that something very bad has happened in the past. And she really does not want to be meeting Cooper right now. At this point, also, I would say that it's, you know, I was in two minds about the idea of bringing Diane into this. You know, I did like her as the mysterious receiver of the tapes and the secretary. I think it's kind of odd that now, you know, we see her on screens. It was a bit jarring at first to think that was going to happen. But I have to say, I really like Laura Dern's portrayal of her, actually. Mm. Um, Especially when she's swearing at the beginning. She does remind me a lot of the character she played in Inland Empire as well. When she just has a kind of screw you attitude to so many things around her. There's Mm. that kind of... She's very good at channeling sort of very complex responses to things that layered under other, you know, facades of how she wants to be seen in one way and how she wants to behave in another Um, But she's really good. And I'm certainly glad that it's her playing Diane and uh, not Christabel playing Tammy Preston, who has the most bizarre way of behaving, talking. I think acting is the term we're looking for. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I haven't really figured it out and it's not really working for me at the moment. No. Did she voice the audiobook? She didn't, did she? It was someone else. It was somebody else who did the voice of Tammy on there. I think she does. She might have been credited for another voice on the tape, on the recording, sorry. But um, I don't, But she wasn't the uh, voice of Tammy Preston on that. But God, if, imagine listening to that. <laughs> like for, you know, for half of those nine hours, listening to her trying to deliver some of the lines. My goodness. And the other thing that happens on the plane is that Gordon shows a picture, which was the only known picture of Coop taken during the 25 years that he was missing, which is him outside some kind of beachfront mansion in Brazil. It looked like a magazine shoot for like GQ or something, <laughs> which means he should be quite easy to find. <laughs> and they, they said that by the time they turned up to find him, uh, there was a girl from Ipanema living there. It's 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 all. It, it looked like uh, some kind of Miami Vice uh, appreciation society shot. <laughs> so we still don't really know what Coop was doing all that time. Yeah, but I think we're starting to get a sense that he was uh, up to no good. Yeah. <laughs> so then we arrive at Yankton Prison. Notably, this is the first time it's actually labelled as Yankton Prison. So when they previously went there, Cole and Albert and Tammy... It was just the prison in South Dakota. But here it has the tagline. Mm. And that would have been important because then we would have been able to confirm back then that this was the same place that Ray Monroe is at. 
Um, but they do it now, clearly, to keep some of the mystery back. Um, although, if you're watching it in a film, it wouldn't make sense to only show the name of the location later on. Mm. But that, we can wait for the 18-hour supercar, the whole thing, <laughs> that we'll sit down and watch at the, end of the, at the end of September. Right, so we know this is the prison where both Evil Coop and Ray are at. And uh, Diane is... Uh, being led with Cole to have a little short interview with Evil Cooper to see if she can discern if it's um, him or not, if there's anything uh, wrong that she can perceive. It's interesting that, you know, she's extremely anxious for all of her... It's like we were saying earlier, for all the cool exteriors, ice-cold exteriors she has, she's absolutely terrified of seeing him because it's almost like the emotional trauma is just bubbling up to the surface. And I remember that seeing her, you know when she's sitting in front of the screen... As it slowly goes up, you see her hands, you know, wide open, just pressed on the console in front of her. Like mm. she's trying to maintain her composure just by gripping the table a little bit. I think the, the weirdest bit is when it goes up and Cooper sees her and he says, you know, I knew it was going to be you. And you realise that uh, this really is the bad Cooper we're looking mm. at. I mean, there's something very dark about everything he's saying. I mean, he's like a psychotic how 9000 at the moment just saying like <laughs> delivering all these lines without emotion but in a strange sort of deadpan monotone which is just really freaky to listen to and then diane brings up this issue of you know trying to find out if he can remember their last encounter i presume just to get an immediate response as to whether it's the same person she knew or not and he says you know it, the last time he met was uh, that night at your house and immediately her face kind of just drops and you realize all some you know all these feelings are flooding back and she's trying to remain you know composed she stares back at him and since she keeps saying who are you when mm. she looks at him and this is exactly what Laura said to Leland Bob you know uh, when he comes yeah. into her room at night in fire walk with me um she keeps asking it but in a really in a really sort of determined fashion. And I do wonder if it's mirroring that same event when Leland stroke Bob was assaulting Laura, whether actually maybe Diane, if, as is implied, she was assaulted by evil Coop, maybe she saw Bob's face then as well. And there's something about the fact that she knew there was something wrong with him then that was not just there's something wrong with Cooper, but she sensed something far worse as well. Yeah, because we know that people have seen Bob's face in Cooper because Doc Hayward saw Bob's face in Cooper when he left the hospital. You know, when he says that he called out to Cooper as he was leaving the last time he saw him, he turned around and he says, I saw that terrible face again. And then Cooper just left. So maybe people... Because previously it was um, what Sarah Palmer could could see Bob sometimes, but not everybody could. Um, so maybe Diane has seen it. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's makes it takes more of an effort to prevent Bob's face emerging if Bob is inhabiting somebody. Mm. You know, maybe um, it's a tough thing to constantly keep it hidden, so occasionally it flashes out and things like that. But yeah, I mean, I think the one thing about this scene though is it's great. I mean, it is it's the reunification of Jeffrey and Sandy from Blue Velvet, but it's a very strange thing to watch given that we saw them together in Blue Velvet, and now this is an extremely warped version of their interaction sort of 30 years on mm. um, it's very very odd to see that now it makes me wonder if diane will ever meet good coop again yeah i think there's gonna be a lot of that because certainly there's an implication that 
bad coop may have done as much as he could to kind of destroy the good coop's life and friends and relationships and everything but these are not things that are undone just by a good cooper showing up yeah. and saying oh that wasn't me it's a weird thing i mean certainly there's a there is a, a problem here which is that you know when evil coop emerges from the lodge it, essentially i i think it's implied that the doppelganger is sort of the psyche split into two mm. so you have the good side and the bad side and this is the bad side of cooper and bob is inhabiting him i think the problem comes because we might be being forced to realise that the things that evil Cooper is doing are not driven by Bob. You can almost imagine they're being spurred on by Bob, who's like an encouraging force here, because yeah. Bob wants to create a situation of pain and suffering that allows him to harvest the Garmin Bozier and become more powerful. The other side of it is these actions are intentional on the part of evil Coop. Certainly in the same way that there's a bit of confusion over how complicit Leland was in the events with Laura. Bob is a driving force there, but there are things that Leland does that he must be aware of, and certainly towards the end it appears that he's unable to maintain a separation between himself and the inhabiting Bob spirit as well. The things that Bad Coop is doing are not necessarily just attributed to Bob being present. It's like what we were saying earlier, there are evil things that people do that are not related to a supernatural evil they're just inherently evil and this is the bad i would dare to say um unrestrained side of cooper lashing out as well um, which i think is a very interesting thing to portray but i think a very difficult thing to handle if you know maybe everyone just hoped that we'd wait 25 years twin peaks would be back and good cooper would be back immediately and everything would be fine it was incredibly bold move to bring back a show that had such an iconic sort of protagonist even though it was very much an ensemble show originally you know Coop was the driving force of the show to bring it back and to make people wait so long for the version of the protagonist that they remember and that they love it's it's a very brave thing to have done and I think it still remains to be seen as to when we get good Coop back in the real world and if he will ever really be the same because I'm not sure that he really can be the same. I think even if this is the, the good side of Coop or a better side of him, it's a problem because he's going to have to deal with not only rectifying how he exists in the real world now, but also 25 years in the Black Lodge. Mm. Are gonna, it's going to do something to you. <laughs> yeah. So once Diane has decided she's had enough of speaking to him, she goes outside and she talks to Gordon and she kind of pulls Gordon away from Albert and Tammy and speaks to him alone and says that, you know, whoever that is, it's not the Cooper that she knew. And she says, you know, it's not just the passage of time, it's not just the way that he's changed, the way that he looks. And she, she kind of points at her heart and says, there's something in here or there's something that's not there that implies that they're aware that this is Coop and not Coop at the same time. That there is something missing. I mean, you could say that it's Coop without a soul. Yeah, certainly. I think the, you know, the comment about the the ring finger implies that that, that the spirit has been reversed in some way yeah. in this iteration of Coop that they're seeing. I still think it's interesting that, well, two things about this scene. 
Cole suddenly becomes a lot more receptive to Diane once he's gotten what he needs in terms mm. of the information. But I think he's also, although he has this kind of quite tough exterior sometimes, it's interesting that she completely breaks you know, dealing with this whole situation is kind of too much. He's had to bottle it up for a long time. And it's interesting that she immediately kind of goes to hug him just in some kind of consolation. And he looks like almost bad for having pushed the situation. He knows what he's dredged up and he knows that something has happened. And I think it's a very kind of tough situation for both Diane and uh, Gordon. But I do hope that in some way, there is a way to resolve the interaction between Diane and Good Cooper later on. It seemed like so much the heart of uh, what Good Cooper was about. Yes, then we have a brief scene where it goes back to Bad Coop going back to his cell, and then he demands a meeting with. Uh, the warden and again the way he can get his attention is he mentions the fact that uh, he wants to talk about a strawberry Mm. so what we thought was like a little throwaway comment of mr strawberry thing it's interesting that will and does turn out to be something which is going to be a recurring thing in the interactions with warden murphy although we don't know if by the end of the episode that's the end of it maybe we'll never hear this thing again Mm. but that appears to be enough at least in evil coop's eyes to get the warden to take notice of him and then it must be 4.30, so uh, Andy has gone to the logging road for his meeting with that dude who owns the truck that Richard Horn might have been driving. And this is actually the shot from the trailer, yeah, which yeah. was there for a while, where he's kind of standing on the road with his uh, patrol car door open. And no one shows up. I think it's, he's waited like half an hour or so. Um, so I think the implication is what, that that person is not going to show up because he doesn't want to, or because he's dead. No. Yeah, because it cuts to a shot of that shack yeah. where he spoke to him earlier. And the door is ajar, and there's another weird, ominous humming sound coming from inside. Yeah, which makes you wonder about what it was he was afraid of. Yeah. Um, again, going back to this issue of was it something worse than Richard Horn? Yeah. Also, you get a nice uh, close-up of Andy's watch when he checks the time. Yeah, very fancy Rolex. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I watched that. I need to think that uh, maybe Lucy's not the only person who's been stealing things from evidence. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird bit of product placement, though, because... If you think about it, in like a James Bond film, and he has a fancy watch on, mm. it's designed so that they can make posters of it, and it'd be like, oh, I want to be like Daniel Craig. I want to be like James Bond. I want to have that watch. Mm. But no one's going to see Andy Brennan and go, <laughs> I want that man's watch. I want to be just like him. <laughs> but hey, he seems to uh, have done pretty well for himself with a very fancy watch. Yeah. And now he can turn his spare room into a daddy. <laughs> it's, it's all working out well for Andy. <laughs> Why don't get is why if if they thought that that was the truck, why didn't they impound the truck? Why didn't they seize it and search the house? Why yeah, they must have enough like probable cause. Yeah, learned that from television. Probable cause. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it must be one of those things where if somebody's identified the truck, which must be the reason why they're coming to look at it, they must be able to say, well, we think this is the one. It might it might be involved in the crime, and therefore we want to check it out and do some CSI crap on it. Of course, if Andy was going to go and speak to him and that got around the sheriff's office, then Chad would know that he was going to speak to him. And uh, we all know that Chad is 
rotten and is up to no good with Richard Horn. That's true. So maybe it was being done on the DL. Yeah, because initially I was thinking, why was Andy out there by himself? There seemed to be other deputies around. Why didn't he take someone with him? But I wonder if Andy... I don't know if he suspects something. He certainly thinks that Chad is a dick. Yeah. But then... Everyone does. Everyone does. He was very upset when Chad was mean about the log lady. Uh, But I don't know if anyone suspects that Chad is corrupt yet. But if not, I really hope someone finds out. (laughs) So then we're back to Yankton Prison. And the Mr. Strawberry message has clearly got the warden rattled enough that he gets Bad Coop into his office in terms of all the security cameras and pulls a gun on him. And is basically like, okay, what the hell is going on? And Coop says something which at this point is completely inexplicable. Where he says that he sent the other three dog legs, presumably from the same dog, out with the information, and we don't know what information it might be, to people who will either come and kill the warden or reveal information about the warden if anything happens to Bad Coop. And when the warden challenges him on it, he says the name Joe McCluskey, which I don't think means anything to anyone at this point, but presumably means something to the warden because he completely freaks out at this. Um, And then when Coop demands to be let go together with Ray and and a gun and a phone and a rental car and everything, he just agrees. So whatever it is that the warden has been mixed up in with the late Mr. Strawberry, who may or may not be the dog, and Joe McCluskey, whoever that was, is clearly something terrible. That he's basically going to let these people go, knowing that the FBI want this guy kept where he is. So how is he going to explain how this guy's got away? Hmm. So then we return to Las Vegas, where... Dougie Coop is in the offices of Lucky Seven and Anthony Sinclair is there and he's trying to get answers uh, from him about what Coop may have been talking to Bushnell about because he knows that his jig may be up. Now Coop's ignoring him and I think that just makes Sinclair even more frustrated. But what's interesting is that he's kind of stabbing the the uh, tabletop a little bit, he's scratching it. Now yeah. that reminded me a little bit of the scratches that you see on the playing card. Yeah. So I don't know what that's about, if it's the same thing. I mean, it could just be the fact that he, he still can't use sort of fine motor skills to operate a pencil, but there's something weird about him doing that, and that card had been defaced in a very similar way. But how that fits in, I don't really know. And Janie is there to pick him up, but he hasn't turned up. And um, one of the women who works at the office comes in and says that the police are there because they want to speak to him. They come in, they come to meet with him, and it's interesting, in the credits, they're actually all called uh, Detective Fusco. <laughs> for, for some reason, I have no idea whether it's such a... You know, it can't be that small a place that all the cops are related. That'd be really weird. It really is a family of cops. Um, it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of In Due South, where they've got Huey, Dewey, and then later on Louis. Those are three detectives. It's also a bit like Die Hard, where you have the two... Mm, are they yeah. Johnson and Johnson or something? Yeah, yeah. no relation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, so when uh, the woman comes in and says that the police are there, Sinclair basically leaves, they've got to make a call. Mm, which I think that... Whatever scam he's running, he has accomplices in the police. Because I think the same names of the detectives were on some of the reports yeah. that Dougie was highlighting. So when he says, oh, please, yeah, that reminds me, I've got to make a call. I think he's going to call his accomplices in the police force. Yeah. And the police start asking Coop about what's going on. He can't really explain, but they, they kind of want to know if his car has been stolen when he last saw it. And he can't really answer without 
parroting things back. And all he's interested in is the badges again mm. of the of the police. And interesting, again, Janie suddenly steps up and defends him quite a lot, answers questions for him, um, backs him up, and just all round is kind of, you know, being his voice in a in a world where he's unable to kind of communicate properly, which is yeah. kind of, you know, it shows, of, again, that new side that developed in Janie in the last episode, um, certainly. And Bushnell comes in as well, and he guesses that they've already found the car. And they reveal that the car was involved in an explosion, people died. And the people who tried to steal the car, who died, were part of a, a car theft ring in some way. So it's clear that this is going to pick up some steam as it's investigated as a crime. But then they leave. And uh, I think when they're kind of happy that it's gone, you know, they, they have some of the answers that they need. Um, and Bushnell lets him leave. And it was interesting there because even Coop, he says, you know, thank you, Mullins, when he's leaving, which is, again, one of those phrases which he does not by parroting, but where he genuinely is able to formulate the odd sentence as well. Yeah. And what I've realised is that this is all happening on the same day that Janie paid off the loan sharks because she says to him, oh, it's been a hell of a day. I'll, I'll tell you all about it later, Dougie. And he used to wear in the black suit. And Sinclair was asking him what he was talking to Mullins about earlier that day. I've been trying to wrap my head around the passage of time in other storylines because so much has happened. And yet in Las Vegas, it's still the same day that it was in the previous part. Mm. Oh, that's a yeah. bit kind of mind bendy. So although it's switching to different geographical locations, the pace of time is, is different in all of them, actually. Yeah, because Diane has made it to South Dakota in that time and it felt like a lot longer had passed but it hasn't at all and then so when they're leaving and they go to the car that's when we see that another appearance of ike the spike or jean-luc ice picard um who runs out of the crowd at dougie coop with a gun which is not the most effective way to do things i suppose if you've got a gun you do it from a distance i presume but he runs up to him and then instinctively dougie coop kind of switches to Proper coop, <laughs> I suppose. Um, and he kind of disarms him. He karate chops him in the neck, kind of stuns him. It's actually quite nice to see Janie get stuck in, kind yeah. of like strangling him as well. And there's a moment where, although like a reflex it's kicked in, Coop is kind of almost not sure what to do next. And that's when we see another appearance of the evolution of the arm appearing in front of him, which tells him to squeeze his, squeeze his hand off or tease his hand off or something. So he's trying to, well, so uh, Cooper's trying to tease Ike's hand off the, off the gun. It's already gone off one. He's trying to completely disarm him. And when he's done that, actually, what happens? He kind of, you know, he kind of... Um, he elbows him again. Elbows him again. And then he kind of stumbles, and then Ike kind of stumbles away and then kind of runs off. Yeah. defeated and then there's a moment when Dougie kind of looks up and he almost seems like he has a much better sense of who he is as in he remembers a little bit more than um, is usual but then he immediately kind of sinks back into Dougie mode a little bit as everyone kind of recovers from the scene of what's happened yeah a lot of people are just kind of standing around staring at them and then I'm sure I could hear when he's standing there looking up and and Janie is you know checking he's all right I felt like I could hear helicopters or something hmm. overhead. It was, it was, but I'm not sure if it was meant to be anything there, or if it was something going on in Cooper's mind. But it's, it's going back to the, the weird sounds that you hear sometimes. Listen to the sounds. <laughs> you must listen. I think also the the appearance of the evolution of the arm in the real world, 
mm. as well. I think that does also support the idea that, you know, this is not a parallel universe or dream world. This is the real world that he's in, but the Lodge is having influences in it, which is something we've been talking about for ages. I mean, I think there's, it's almost like it's a real place. Um, and we've been waiting for the moments where it can connect up to other things that are happening. And now we have an explicit experience of um, a Lodge denizen in the real world. And obviously later on, we're going to see the appearance of the key. Now, the fact the key has been sent from Dougie's life in Las Vegas to Twin Peaks means that the key exists and it's come from a real place. Yeah. So these must all be happening contemporaneously. Um, yeah. I think it is the real world, but there is some kind of lodge influence happening in Las Vegas because he's seen Mike a couple of times. So, you know, the kind of veneer between the real world and the Black Lodge is, it seems kind of thin. And now he's seen the evolution of the arm, albeit very small one going at the <laughs> pavement um and also it then immediately shifts into this kind of news coverage style um footage of them kind of interviewing bystanders and asking them what happened and you have the woman who says douglas jones he moved like a cobra it was like a blur uh and everyone could very excitable about what's happened. And there's that girl that said he smelled funny. Yeah. And I wonder if that smell was scorched engine oil. Yeah. You know, because that would imply that I presume that might have not been him. It could have actually been uh, the appearance of the evolution of the arm. So an appearance yeah. of something from the lodge doing that or a, a change in the state of Cooper may have triggered that. Yeah. in some way there's something going on about that but it's odd that they would make that reference and you know there's there's a there's a smell in the world of twin beaks and it's uh it's scorched engine oil yeah and that when you're looking at this kind of news footage style uh thing it it, it focuses in on them peeling what looks like a chunk of flesh off the gun um, and it looks a little bit like the chunk of flesh that was in bill hastings car yeah in a way. I mean, I don't think it's the same thing, but it, it, it was kind of visually similar. But it's weird because I'm sure that when you saw the gun earlier, it didn't look like it had anything on it because you see him tease his hand off it. There's a pretty clear shot, I thought, of the handle of the gun mm. from that side. And I didn't see anything on it then. But when Ike runs away, he is holding his hand. And you do wonder if maybe he has been injured in some way. But I couldn't really work that bit out. So then we go back to the Great Northern and we get Ben and Beverly um, standing around in an office and there's a, this kind of strange humming sound coming from the walls and they're very slowly moving around the office trying to figure out where it's coming from. Wherever they move, it sounds like it's coming from somewhere else. And it's almost like this very kind of slightly quaint game of them shuffling around, slightly giddy, trying to figure out where this hum is coming from. And she says that it's been going on for a while now, but it's got louder recently. And then she shows him the key because the key has shown up for room 315. Uh, and we were wondering who it was who would recognise it. And Ben immediately recognised it as a really ancient key that they haven't used for a long time. And then when he sees the room number, he immediately thinks that's the room where uh, Agent Cooper got shot. Which is interesting that that's the thing that he remembers. Mm. Not that's the room where Agent Cooper stayed. That's yeah. the room where he got shot because... If you run a hotel, that's that's the event you remember. They must have had to clean the blood out or <laughs> something. So he kind of you know ponders the key for a bit, and then there's some kind of I I couldn't tell if 
there was some kind of weird flirting going on between him and Beverly. They, they're just kind of standing around not really knowing what to say. Certainly it was implied by the first conversation between Ben and Jerry that Ben is still not free of his extramarital dalliances. Yeah. But I, I'm not sure what was going on. But it just seemed a bit a bit strange and certainly something that will return. And, and again, I think we mentioned it before, but we haven't seen Sylvia yet. Mm. So we don't really know what's going on. Yeah. And then he says to Beverly, oh, you know, you, you know, you feel free to go home. It's, you know, long since uh, the end of the working day. So she leaves and he's looking at the key again. And then the camera kind of moves around towards one of the walls and behind a lamp. And... I don't understand how you can make looking at planks so sinister. <laughs> it was really freaky. Just the way that it, it shifted and zoomed in. I kept thinking that I was going to see something, but then the fact that you don't see anything there just makes it worse because you think, oh God, what is it? Yeah, I think what obviously Audrey had her secret hiding places in the walls, but the first thing I thought was going to happen was we were going to see a shock appearance by Josie mm. or like a bad CGI face kind of like, moving around or something there was something that was going on there Josie's story is relatively unresolved she's left in the woodwork of the Great Northern and certainly she would be somebody who would be looking over what Ben's doing after their interactions over the Ghostwood Estates Mm. so how that works I don't really know but there's something funny going on Beverly's saying that the sound started a week ago though now was that when the real good Cooper returned roughly yeah it's been how long has it been now three days four days He's been at work two days. Yeah. And he arrived back in Las Vegas the day before when he was at the casino. He spent one day in the casino? Yeah. It's just I was thinking that maybe this thing started when the real coup re-entered the world Mm. in some way. I mean, it's not exactly a week, but there could be some trigger for it. And certainly it could be being signalled by Josie or something. And there's that nice bit where it shows the lamp and you can see the the owl cave symbol, which is probably Mm. more just like a design, a production design choice. But you can see the lamp itself and then the shadows which the frame of the lampshade casts creating that same um, alcave pictograph as well and of course when we see the key it'd be really interesting to know if it does still have the same slogan you know clean place reasonably priced which is the one that we thought cooper came up with rather than something that was actually part of the great northern and then we see beverly arrive home um and speak to her husband tom and also um, a woman who's leaving who's presumably been caring for him while she was at work. I'm not sure if it's like a professional carer or a relative or something, but he's obviously gravely ill. We're not sure what it is. He seems very suspicious of the fact that she's been working late. She seems very angry about the fact that he doesn't appreciate what she's doing, going back to work. It seems like a very fractured it seems like a relationship fracturing under stress of someone being gravely ill basically and i don't know if that's a plot line that's going to get returned to or if it's just one of those little glimpses that lynch and frost like to give us of people's lives where things might seem very nice and pleasant on the surface but actually underneath it there's a lot of angst happening all the time and then we migrate to the roadhouse in Twin Peaks, where Green Onions is playing, and there's a man with the smallest broom he can find sweeping up all this stuff <laughs> off the floor. In the background, Jean-Michel, who is, I think he's a cousin of the three main Renault brothers yeah. um, initially, 
so he's kind of behind the bar doing stuff and then he takes um, a phone call the phone call is kind of interesting because firstly he it's clear that not only has he taken over the roadhouse apparently it's been in their family for like you know 57 years or something but he's still running a prostitution ring out of it as well Um, so he makes reference to sort of two 15 year old prostitutes there's a weird parallel that comes in with Laura and Ronette in the original series and yeah. that, I don't want to keep looking for parallels and everything but it's very striking they're bringing these concepts up again and again and it's it's another moment where we realise that that criminal element is still alive in Twin Peaks you know for all of the nice scenes in the roadhouse and the friendly things going on in the sheriff's station etc you realise there's an undercurrent of criminal activity and evil which is floating around and sometimes the two really intertwine a lot and in this case we have already an indication that the drug problem is still there through the Richard Horn red storyline and now we have a storyline about um, the prostitution still being ongoing as well so behind the nice facade of Twin Peaks everything is still there and this is all coupled to the fact that we have what four or five minutes of just a dude sweeping the floor <laughs> which is strangely easy to watch <laughs> I know, and another subversion of the music at the Roadhouse being the end. Yeah. Because, again, it wasn't the end. And initially I was thinking, is this... Because you lose track of time watching a party between Pete. Especially after watching the previous six directly in advance. Yeah. So I was expecting a credit draw, and then they didn't. Um, and it'll be interesting to know if, when they do subvert the credits rolling over music at the Roadhouse, it's a signifier of something bad because last time it was a signifier of the introduction of Richard Horn yeah um and this time the ending is just even weirder but we'll come to that so we go back to Yankton prison again and the most cool-headed prison escape you will ever see <laughs> uh which is just bad coop strolling out of his jail cell there's someone right at the, at the end of the corridor with a torch who has presumably let them out and the whole thing is illuminated by it. So you get this beautiful um, silhouette of the bar spreading across the floor. And Bad Coopy strolls out, perfectly calm. Um, out strolls Ray as well. Ray seems quite happy to see Coop. Because at this point, presumably, Ray doesn't know that Daria is dead. He doesn't know that Bad Coop knows that Ray was going to kill him. But Bad Coop still needs something from Ray. So at the moment, it's all very, oh, hi, yeah, nice to see you, let's get out of here. But presumably that will not last for very long between the two of them. I can see that ending very, very badly indeed. And Ray must still want to fulfil the mission from pseudo Jeffries yeah. uh, to kill Evil Cooper as well. Yeah, because there's half a million in it for them, or for, or for him now, yeah. all by himself. So they stroll outside and there's a rental car waiting for them. One of the prison guards hands them the keys which suggests that there's a lot of corruption going on in this prison because it's not just the warden, mm. because the guards are actively participating in letting them go. Um, and they now know that they've let them go. And the warden is kind of standing up above watching all this play out, presumably lamenting about what he has unleashed upon the world in uh, letting him go. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, I can't tell if he's more worried about the secret involving Mr. Strawberry and Joe McCluskey getting out or what the FBI are going to do when they find out that he's let him go. But he's clearly gone for the self-preservation route to save his own reputation or some mystery he's hiding. But I'm pretty certain that it's going to be Albert who goes to town on him. 
Mm. <laughs> and I wouldn't be surprised if Cole let him as well. <laughs> right, so then the episode ends uh, with a wonderful kind of shot looking over the trees. Mm. And again, there's that sense that everything is moving towards Twin Peaks and a lot has happened in Twin Peaks this episode as well, or this part. I'll never get used to that. But we go to the double R and it's a very strange series of events. It looks kind of um, pretty normal. It's a it's a full uh, it's full at the double R. Uh, there's customers sitting at most of the tables, etc. You see Shelley um, in the Middle Island bit serving customers. Norma appears to be doing the books. Some Heidi's guy there. Heidi's yeah. there. Um, then some guy appears at the door and says, "Has anybody seen Billy?" And then kind of looks around, no response, and then runs away. Shelley looks a bit startled and then kind of carries on doing stuff. But that's what's kind of a bit funky about the whole thing. Whilst you're watching these events happen and just listening to these things, what appears to happen, and again, I don't know if it's a continuity error, but I really don't think it is. I think it's very intentional here. In the shots from both the left and right side of uh, the counter looking towards the entrance to the double R pre and post the appearance of the guy asking if anybody's seen Billy we see some very obvious changes in the clientele who are there we see different people sitting at uh, different tables we see like one table is full then it becomes empty in the next shot we see like a guy in a big sort of woolly jumper Mm. by the counter at one point then he switches to a another guy in a blue shirt or something just as the camera is jumping from side to side and sort of before and after the situation with the guy asking if billy's around yeah we re-watched it a couple of times and i count at least three different combinations of people sitting Mm. around um as well as there being different people sitting at different parts of the counter in the booths heidi also seems to jump from one side of the the room to the other it's very odd and it's 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 almost subliminal the first time that you watch it and then as the music plays and the credits roll there's another piece of music undercutting it that kind of gets louder and louder mm. which is like kind of old twin peaks twin peaks yeah. music because there's like this twangy guitar music playing over everything like it would in like the double r usually on the jukebox yeah. and then we hear something else and that really implies that something has happened and certainly Shelley's reaction, at first I thought, is that just her looking slightly bemused at this person who's run in and shouted something and gone? Yeah. Or has she kind of perceived something as different? It just seems a bit odd. It's almost like in The Matrix when something has changed and you see, you ha- and you have deja vu and you see the cat twice and things yeah. like that. There's something weird about it. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it means. I just think that given that there's so much detail in this show that they've taken care over, would they really have made such a glaring continuity error? I don't know. No, I, I don't think they would. I think it must be intentional for it to change not once but twice. And it isn't even people sitting in a slightly different place. It's completely different people sitting mm-hmm. at completely different parts of the of the diner. Except the three people who are at the counter who stay the same. Yeah. yeah. There's like, I think one of them has a, has a hat on. Two of yeah. them are wearing shirts, one a jumper or something. Yeah. Three of them sitting together. They stay the same. But the others seem to move around. And in different shots, you can see people who are in previous shots sort of in the other side of the double R. Yeah. But it doesn't really make much sense. 
No, and it, it reminded me in some ways of a classic piece of distraction that magicians do when they're performing a magic trick that they will make you look at something happening in one place in order to change something happening yeah. somewhere else. That that when the dude bursts through the door and shouts, you're immediately just concentrating on him, as is everybody else. They all look around and look at him. And then when he he's gone, you don't notice that things have changed. The magic trick has been performed and things have been switched. You know, the card has been put up someone's sleeve or it reminded me of that. It also reminded me of some of those psychological experiments. I don't know if you ever watched these videos at school where they basically show you a video and they ask you to concentrate on something. Like there's one where uh, there's two people playing ping pong and they ask you to, to count how many times a bat hits the ball, right? So you're concentrating so much on this going back and forth. I know what it was. It was a Darren Brown show. He was showing this video and you're concentrating so much on how many times the ball got hit. And then it was like 30, 40 times or something like that. And then they show you the video again. And there's like a, a guy in one of those comedy um, gorilla suits that people do like fun running marathons in. Mm. Who comes in at the side of the screen and dances around. And you never saw him because you were concentrating so much <laughs> on what was happening with the ping pong. And it's, it's, it's like there's some kind of sleight of hand happening been below our perception because we're too busy being distracted by the has anybody has anybody seen Billy? So I didn't know if it was that or I didn't know if it was some commentary on how people are just so dismissive of what well, is clearly some terrible thing that is happening to that dude or whatever's going on. And they're just completely blase about it. Oh, I'll just go back to normal, just gonna finish my dinner, everything's fine. When something terrible is happening outside. And it reminds me of the way in Originally, something terrible was happening to Laura and nobody wanted to look at what was happening. No one wanted to think about it. That thing where Bobby was saying, we could have helped her. Nobody did anything. We all knew she was in trouble. Nobody does anything. Everyone just stands around and then gets on with their, their dinner. And meanwhile, something really messed up and disturbing has happened and everyone has switched around. <laughs> I thought it was just a wonderful continuity error. <laughs> We're reading so much into it. We've got our eye on the hole, not on the donut. <laughs> Right, so that's it for our recap and analysis of part seven. Where do you think things are going next? I think that the, the thing that connects most of the plot lines together at this point is Bad Coop. And it's kind of interesting that he's been contained for the last few hours of the story, um, stuck in, in Yankton prison, because actually most of the threads connect to him in some way um, obviously all the stuff in Buckhorn connects to him because he was involved in whatever was going on with the car of Betty the secretary um, he killed Phyllis Hastings he wants information he's got some connection there he's connected to everything that's going on with the FBI obviously because they are now presumably going to go after him he's connected to whatever is happening down in Buenos Aires which may or may not be to do with Philip Jeffries the fact that he's mentioned Philip Jeffries by name suggests that it is. And through that connection to Buenos Aires, that then connects up to Las Vegas, because, of course, Lorraine was also connected to whatever was going on in Buenos Aires. So 
an awful lot of these threads are going through bad coop and now that he has been unleashed back upon the world i think that whatever his next game plan is is going to shift things in a big big way in the story but what's interesting is that despite all of these connections everything happening in twin peaks is still quite isolated at this point the only real thread now connecting it is the key that has gone from las vegas to twin peaks but they don't seem to know where the key came from where it was sent from only that it's arrived in the mail so they may not make the obvious connection back to las vegas yeah and hawk now suspects that whoever it was that came out of the lodge was not the real cooper or not the good cooper but at the moment they have no way of knowing who he might be or where he might be or even if he is in the real world because as far as they're concerned he is trapped in the lodge and he can't leave but the footage of dougie which is now on tv might eventually get him recognized somebody else is going to realize that's cooper yeah but it's also going to draw the attention of potentially people who are looking for dougie as well i wonder if this is going to bring back in the casino guys yeah but also we have the situation where we've now got to deal with the fact that whomever the Ben gives the key to will probably then direct how things take place in Twin Peaks. We now know things like the fact that if the body is going to be positively identified by the military as definitely Briggs, then somebody in the FBI is going to find out Hmm. um, about this. And that could then trigger more warnings as well. Certainly if they find out that in the belly of the corpse was Dougie's ring, because that will then lead potentially the FBI back to a Dougie and Janie Jones, hmm. uh, which might be relatively easy to figure out. And then that could then, again, lead back to Cooper for the FBI. So a few different ways might exist for things to start linking up. Also, I think we've got the issue of Cole and his Blue Rose case becoming a bit more prominent now, because he now knows about this backward speech thing becoming a little bit more tangible. Hmm. You know, he doesn't... Well, it's odd, because in the TV show, it hasn't really referenced the fact that he knows about the lodgers, but he did know a lot of what was going on involving the Blue Rose cases with Dougie Milford, etc. So I don't know if they're going to reveal how much he does know about what's going on, certainly if it's happened before. But we've also got this issue of, I suppose, what's going to happen next in Las Vegas. So Ike has failed in his first attempt. Obviously, the poster behind Bushnell suggested there would be four furious rounds. (laughs) Uh, So I presume it's going to end with uh, Bushnell Mullins taking him out in the in the fourth but uh what do you think about what's going to happen is there going to be another attempt on dougie cooper's life i've I've got the latest chart here for the uh the twin peaks las vegas hit parade At six, it's Philip Jeffries with Don't Cry For Me, I'm in Argentina. Wait around to the end for an unexpected fiddle solo from a very cool cat. And at five, it's still the Loan Sharks with their classic rock ballad, Tough Danes. Moving down the charts at four, it's Jean and Jake with I Can See Clearly Now and the Rain Has Gone. These incompetent goons didn't know what they were doing in the first place. We expect them to fall out of the charts next week. (laughs) 
It's an move at three with the Mitchum Brothers and their cover of the Beatles classic Get Back by $400,000. They're still pissed at Dougie and they're on the lookout. Will they see him on the local news? And moving up the charts at two is Sinclair and the Crooked Cops with The Sound of Silence. That's what they want from Dougie. What lengths will they go to to achieve it? And for the second week running at number one, it's Ike the Spike with his 80s inspired double A side, Ike Ike Baby and Take My Gun Away. This overnight sensation is out for revenge. We can't wait to see how his plans play out for his next smash hit single. Tune in next week to see if any of these contenders can take down Dougie Coop and Battling Bud Mullins. I had no idea that was going to happen. <laughs> I wondered what that piece of paper was in front of you. <laughs> so, also in terms of original good Coop kind of snapping back to his usual self, what do you mm-hmm. think is going to be the trigger for that? Because he's clearly having more and more instinctive moments. What's it going to be? Is it going to be cherry pie? Is it going to be like his FBI badge or something? Yeah, I, I wonder if it will be something like Albert and Gordon turning up to find him on the trail of the wedding ring or someone from Twin Peaks coming and finding him, seeing him on the news. I wonder if it's going to be someone from his old life. I can actually see it playing out, you know, like that bit where everyone, I'm sure we mentioned this in another episode, but the bit where everyone turns up at the roadhouse Mm. and then Leland turns to the uh, waiter and, yeah. and you have that moment where he says, oh, that gum you like is going to come back into style. And then it freeze frames. And then you have this moment where it kind of shows the reaction shots of everyone. And Cooper is realising what's going on. Yeah. And he realises that Leland is the killer at that moment as well. I wonder if a similar thing is going to happen. It could even happen in the roadhouse if they can get it back. If they can get him back to the roadhouse. Obviously, mm. the floors are nice and clean now. Everyone <laughs> can be rounded up. And then you can imagine a situation where something will trigger it and you'll have this moment where maybe the realization will be the thing that brings him back again Mm. um but i do hope that hawk is not just involved in finding him but he's also part of the trigger as well because i think that's a bond that would be nice to see given that harry doesn't seem to be around anymore yeah and i still wonder if hawk is going to venture in to the black lodge at some point and retrieve something that that is missing in cooper at the moment um, because we know that, that he knows where the entrance is. Yeah. And we think that scene from parts one and two, where he actually sees the curtains in Glastonbury Grove, that's actually, I think, in the future. It hasn't happened yet in the timeline, because there was no reason for him to know that at the time that Margaret called him, it was actually the point when the stars were aligned, specifically that night for the Black Lodge to open. Mm. And it'd be fascinating to know if the inside of the Black Lodge appears differently to other characters. So, for example, if Hawk goes in, will it look like the classic Black Lodge that we know to him or will it look different? Do people perceive it differently? Because there isn't necessarily any particular reason why it should be red curtains and a a zigzag floor. Yeah, that's true, because I suppose we've, we've seen... Cooper see other characters in there but they're ones that he knows and he's perceiving them Mm. Um, 
but we've never seen anyone else go in and experience it from their perspective. Certainly when Annie goes in, we don't see her reacting to it, do we? We see the fact that Annie is in there already and Cooper is perceiving her in there. So it's, we're seeing Annie from Cooper's perspective, but we don't see how Annie views what's going on when she goes in. Yeah. Same thing almost with uh, Wyndham Earl as well. He turns up, but it's unclear if he's aware of his surroundings in that place. We've never seen actually two people go in, have we? Not in a way that you see both of their perspectives together. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thought that Mm. it, it might appear different. Yeah, so going back to, you know, what the ultimate goal of Bad Coop is, I mean, you know, he's been doing something for the last 25 years, clearly spent some of his time in Rio. We know that must link to the Jeffreys, Buenos Aires, Man in Colombia being dead, all this kind of business. Certainly some of the things we've seen in this part really suggest that at least in the immediate aftermath of the events of the season two finale, he was involved in things involving people in Cooper's life. Mm. Um, although we don't have an exact time point for his interactions with Diane after the tapes are being sent and things like that, we don't really know what's happening. Certainly it's odd because there's never an indication in My Life, My Tapes that he has any romantic interest in Diane. So that can't be something that happened pre-Twin Peaks TV show. Um, but we, there is this, you know, there is this situation that implies that it's highly likely that he assaulted Diane and it's implied that he may have assaulted Audrey but we don't really know if that's happened or not yet um, I still think there's an issue with him trying to search for the Al Cave ring mm. uh, which could be fundamental to everything and I remember that going back to parts one and two he still said he wanted Chantelle and her husband Hutch I think it was to meet yeah. them in a few days time at a specific area Yeah. so that could be coming up um, as well but you can almost imagine that the last 25 years Maybe this has been a big exercise in Evil Coop just harvesting tremendous amounts of Garmin Bosier mm. by creating pain and suffering in so many different people. You know That could have been his sole intention. It's very strange. Although that's really a property of Bob, not the doppelganger. So I don't know how much of each persona is driving the actions that we're seeing at the moment. And what's the current status with the clues that the giant question mark gave him right at the beginning 430 that could that might be done uh-huh. but nothing really happened unless at that time somebody was being killed mm. um we don't know it, like maybe it was a maybe we were seeing one event but another event was taking place which might have prevented um uh, that meeting with andy on the logging road yeah. uh, we have richard and linda now we have our richard we think in richard horn the linda has not been seen on screen but has been referred to as being I'm not sure the friend, sister, wife of uh, or girlfriend of Mickey, mm. who was um, at the new Fat Trap trailer park. Again, is there some relationship between Linda and Richard? I mean, are they, you know, siblings in some way? Are they? Is there something that links them? Then we also have what was the final clue? Two, Two birds, birds, one stone. Yeah, so that could actually be the the link between them. If it if it. If potentially all these clues relate to the same event, that would be kind of interesting. It's not three separate things. It could just be that all different aspects of the same uh, reveal. Yeah. I, I still keep thinking about the way that Coop said, I understand, at the end of it. He, that was in the far future. And I think he has already seen this and he knows what it's about, doesn't he? Yeah, I think they're communicating across some kind of time and space. Yeah. 
just without a TARDIS involved. <laughs> because he would say, you wouldn't say I understand to somebody who's saying, remember the following things. Mm. Would you? No, it's almost like, is he being reminded of it? And now that he realises what the interpretation is, I think it's something that's going to come back again. Yeah. And it um, may not be what we think it is, actually. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. And finally, I want to go back to this Betty the secretary thing. Because we were trying to figure out why on earth Briggs would be in the same place as Ruth Davenport. What would connect them, um, given that she was a school librarian? Like I said, we thought that maybe it was something to do with archives or access to documents. But could it be that Hastings' secretary is Betty Briggs? Yeah. I mean, there's a possibility that he's been in hiding for 25 years, maybe compiling a dossier or keeping tabs on evil coop, etc. And maybe he went to meet his wife. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and therefore maybe coop got wind of that. And or evil coop got wind of that. And now there's a situation where it compromised the safety of everyone. Because it's unclear if Betty is actually bad. All we know is that she knows something. Yeah, that she, Cooper wants. Yeah, she has information that he desperately wants and that Ray, for some reason, is able to get. I find it suspicious that, despite the fact that Betty, the secretary, is Hastings' alibi for the Ruth Davenport murder, he was dropping her home, we haven't witnessed the police interview her because presumably they must have done in order to get her version of events but we haven't witnessed that happening on screen. And whatever they did find out doesn't seem to have affected the investigation in terms of thinking that Bill is the guilty party. And I, I wonder if it's holding something back about who she is and what she knows. And that now that Badge Cooper and Ray are on the loose, are they going to go and look for her? Has she moved on again? Have the police even been able to find her? Hmm. Has she gone into hiding? And certainly the conversation that Hawk has with Bobby does not in any way confirm that Betty is still in Twin Peaks. No, that's true. You know, maybe she moved away when Garland supposedly died, but maybe she was just put... Like, you can imagine that to keep her safe, he may have, you know, given her a new identity or something and told her to go somewhere else. Yeah, and that even to keep Bobby safe, he had to be told that he was dead so that he wouldn't ask any questions and get involved in anything. Um, and he could just have a normal life still in Twin Peaks. I mean, this this could all be nothing. It could just be a completely different Betty. Um, could be Betty from Mulholland Drive. Who knows? <laughs> that, would, that would be really messed up. Yeah. It, it, it's just it's odd that she appears to be so important in so many ways, but we haven't seen her. And it would really link Evil Coop, Briggs, and the Davenport case in sort of a, a more coherent narrative. Um, although that's not something that we necessarily expect. Uh, from these episodes as some of the things we've seen so far have been utterly surprising and completely against our predictions so far. Yeah. And the other thing is that if the military have been looking for Briggs or keeping tabs on his fingerprints, when it crops up in Buckhorn, South Dakota, they don't think, oh, hold on, that's where his widow lives. So maybe she is in, su in such hiding that even the military don't know where she is or that yeah. they haven't kept track of her in any way. I don't know. The alternative suggestion is that even she thinks that Garland Briggs died. Mm. And 
Bobby thinks that, and the military have said, oh yeah, he died in a fire. But they know that secretly he didn't, and he's actually been time-hopping or whatever, trying to do things. And maybe he went to find her, Mm. and that's what compromised everything. Maybe Evil Coop was watching him and tracking him as well, and that's compromised the whole situation. But then that doesn't really fit with the fact that Betty may have been involved in trick to get Hastings to give her a lift. Although it wasn't implied that she had she did any wrongdoing because it was Evil Cooper and Jack who wired the car. And it may have just been rigged to create a series of events that would have meant that Betty couldn't get home that evening and Hastings would have to give her a lift. Yeah. I guess all shall be revealed, we hope. <laughs> and it'll probably all be proven to be wildly inaccurate. <laughs> So join us next week for our thoughts on part eight of Twin Peaks The Return. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch, please find us on Twitter at TFCAA. You can uh, subscribe to us through all the usual places, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Facebook. We have a page, Time for Cakes and Ale, which is our main uh, podcast feed. And we have a website, www.timeforcakesnail.com. So that's it for now. We'll see you again in part eight of Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee. Goodbye. Goodbye.